Hi, welcome back to another episode of Real World Serverless, a podcast where we speak with real world practitioners and get their stories from the trenches. Today, I'm joined by a good friend of mine, Nader, who used to work for AWS in the Amplify team. And nowadays, he's uh, jumped right into the brave new world of uh, Web3. So I'm hoping that he can teach me all about how it works, what it is. Hey, Nader. Hey, what's up? Uh, thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, it's been really interesting to see some of the things that you've been posting on Twitter about Web3. And uh, I guess uh, a lot, well, like myself, and I'm sure a lot of my audience are also been wondering what is Web3? How does it relate to other things like uh, blockchains and NFTs and cryptocurrencies? And can you maybe just start by introducing yourself, uh, your background, and how you got into Web3? Yeah, so um, like you mentioned, I used to work at AWS. I've been a software developer for about 10 years. Before I was at AWS, I was a React Native engineer. I was going around the world for about a year and a half training companies how to build mobile apps with JavaScript and React Native. Before that, I was just a front-end engineer mainly, dabbling a little bit into mobile JavaScript, maybe for a year or so, uh, doing mobile, and then the rest of the time doing web. When I joined AWS, I was really, really interested and still continue to be interested in the serverless technologies that I was working with. So I really was having a blast just working with Amplify, with um, DynamoDB, with Lambda, with uh, AppSync, things like that. So yeah, so I, I've been in the traditional software development space for most of my career. I've only really been in the blockchain space for about 10 months. So after being at AWS for a little over three years, I was starting to kind of dabble and look into the blockchain space. And I was kind of not really educated on how smart contracts work or anything like that up until the end of 2020 when I started really diving into some of that stuff. And after watching a few talks, seeing the underlying technologies from some of these cryptocurrencies that I thought were just there for kind of like speculation, I started really becoming just extremely interested. And I would say one of the things about this space is that it was like very, very compelling in the sense that it was like kind of new. And uh, some of the problems that they were trying to solve seemed kind of uh, complicated, but also fun. So I just became really, really interested in this space. And over the course of like a month, I decided to just uh, leave, you know, the AWS space and kind of try to find a role in, in, in the quote unquote web three, what they call it, what we've been calling it now. Um, but like, you know, it was really just kind of the blockchain space. Okay. So I guess in that case, uh, let's start with uh, how would you define web three and uh, what are some of the technology components that makes you know, web three, web three? Yeah. I mean, to me, the thing that makes the most sense as a developer coming from a, a perspective of a developer is talking about it in the sense of like protocols. So the protocols that we're used to using are like FTP, HTTP, SSH. There are um, you know, dozens or so of protocols that we kind of just use that we build applications with. And when I build a website with HTTP, I can just kind of assume that anyone in the world is going to be able to access it without a centralized intermediary. We don't need a centralized intermediary to kind of make that protocol work. It just works because it's a decentralized protocol. It's been around for a long time. People understand how it works. Now, um, the way I kind of look at Web3 is that we have the introduction of kind of some new types of uh, protocols that we can use to do things that we could not have done maybe in the past. Or 
when I say we can't have done them in the past, we couldn't have done them without a centralized intermediary. So one of those things is the transfer of value. So when I think about sending a payment, um, and this this especially kind of hits home because of some of the experiences that me and my family um, have kind of had. But going back when my dad was growing up in the West Bank of Palestine and, and then throughout him getting older, having some type of involvement with the Bank of Palestine and then now with Lebanon and like just seeing a lot of the problems that happen there, like when you're trying to send payments and how people can kind of just say, oh, this is for terrorism or like whatever, when in reality, it's just like you wanting to send money. And the reason that that I think blockchain technologies, well, for sure, I mean, this isn't kind of just me, but like the original use case for blockchain technologies was this transfer of value without having a centralized intermediary to stop it. So if I want to send money to Palestine today through the traditional world, the complexity between me, myself, and I, my bank accounts, my whatever account that I'd like to kind of maybe interact with, like PayPal or something like that, all of those things put together are very complex. And that's just me in the United States. Imagine someone, you know, in a part of the world that is unstable, that does not have the quote unquote, like high quality financial infrastructure that we have. And I, and I say quote unquote, because, you know, a lot of people might argue that our financial infrastructure here in the United States sucks, but it's still much better than like, you know, most, most countries. I think a lot of people don't realize that if they haven't really experienced, <laughs> experienced that. But, um, but yeah, so like the, one of the really, really big moments for me was being able to like start picking up solidity and picking up a smart contract and being able to write the transfer of value between two parties with about three lines of code compared to all of the stuff that I've done in the past with payment APIs, along with my experiences with the traditional banking infrastructure. It was kind of like this huge light bulb moment and it was definitely a paradigm shifting feel. You know, like as a developer, like I've had a few of those things happen in my career. One of them was definitely uh, serverless technologies I felt was kind of like a paradigm shifting a little bit. The the uh, React Native framework to me was was pretty big deal because I was be, I was able to write these you know applications and I kind of felt like that but maybe on a bigger scale with this smart contract stuff. So yeah, that was kind of one of the first things that really was was compelling to me that anyone in the world can literally open up a web browser, download a wallet, and I can send them payments without anyone stopping us from doing that. And like it just was so different than what we have previous to that, it is the, you know, fundamental like breakthrough, or, or I would say it's kind of like the the big innovation that a lot of people, I would say, that come into Web3 first experience. And then and then from there, there's a, a lot of other stuff maybe that, that they become interested in. Okay, there's quite a few things I want to unpack there, but maybe we can start by uh, just maybe explaining to the audience uh, what is a smart contract. Uh, I guess that, that is uh, very much tied to Ethereum. Uh, are they the only uh, blockchain network that supports smart contracts? And, uh, you know, under the hood, what is a smart contract? It's just a bit of code that you can write that gets run on every somebody else's machine whenever they uh, decide to open a contract or execute it. Yeah, so the original implementation of a blockchain was Bitcoin. And Bitcoin is really kind of basic in the sense that you can only really transfer value between parties. You can't actually write any business logic or you can't write an application there. 
from there, there have been, you know, a lot of different people that are building out different blockchains and they all have different properties and different things. But the next kind of huge innovation, in my opinion, and, and, and a lot of other people's opinion, too, is was Ethereum. And Ethereum allowed you to kind of write exec- executable code that was then also stored on this distributed ledger. So not only could you just say, okay, I want to send 0.01 of this unit between parties, but I actually can store state and I can also write functions. And anyone that wants to interact with this application can because it's now uh, you know, running on this network and the network that I'm kind of talking about or like when you first, I would say the first network that supported this type of uh, technology was Ethereum. And the Ethereum is run on something called the Ethereum virtual machine, the EVM. And a lot of other blockchains and a lot of other people have kind of forked this technology and and either iterated on it, improved upon it, or just copied it. So once you kind of learn the EVM, you can write Solidity and you can write smart contracts across dozens of blockchains. Ethereum was uh, the original one, but just like all technology evolves and improves, Ethereum is is kind of slow. It's also expensive and it's also environmentally unfriendly. So we now have other blockchains like, for instance, Polygon, which are environmentally friendly and they're really inexpensive to do that. And then I think, you know, down the road, we're going to continue to see these smart contracts, uh, or, or I would say actually these blockchain networks that uh, allow you to execute smart contracts, getting cheaper, more environmentally friendly and um, and better. So when you say environmentally friendly, uh, how is Ethereum, I guess, not environmentally friendly? And how is the Polygon more uh, environmentally friendly? Um, I guess in what aspect are we talking about here? Yes. Yeah, so the main thing that you typically hear around with uh, the different networks and the um, controversies around maybe some of them, a lot, a lot of the main pushback that people have is around the consensus mechanism. So if I want to have the state of the the chain come to an agreement between other people within the network, um, there are different consensus mechanisms around around kind of writing these transactions. And the original consensus mechanism with Bitcoin was called proof of work, meaning that if I submit a transaction, then I have all of these computers around the world and they're kind of like competing to solve the result of that transaction. And whoever does it first gets to write to the network and then they get a reward in the form of uh, payment. And the old way of doing things was basically we're going to like do all this computation and it's kind of like for no reason, you're just kind of like, you know, when I say no reason, obviously there is a reason, but like, you know, theoretically there has to be a better way and there is, but you're just sitting there writing all of these you're, you're sitting there doing all these calculations, trying to come up with the, the right, cal- the right um, result. And then if you can find, a, find that result, then you are able to kind of write that transaction. And then you broadcast that to the network and then it gets confirmed, blah, blah, blah. But um, it's very, you know, wasteful because like all you're doing is just wasting computation. So they've, they have other now consensus mechanisms that are more environmentally friendly that don't require all of that work. So instead of proof of work, you have proof of history, you have proof of stake, you have a couple of others that are kind of also trying to find a way for all these these computers within this network to come to a consensus around the state of the network. And, you know, that's kind of a lot of the innovation that you see happening in the space is like finding 
either better consensus mechanisms altogether or just improving an existing consensus mechanisms. But I think it's become pretty clear that for most people that a proof of work is really outdated and it's not something that we would support a new network using. In fact, we would even kind of lobby for any network using that to kind of move to something else. Like Ethereum is, is currently, you know, in this transition phase to moving to proof of stake, which is essentially have my instead of having a miner that runs an algorithm you have a miner that i as a person contributing to the network can stake some of my ethereum and the um, people that are staking their uh, ethereum into the network are essentially putting up their money or their tokens to say we want to verify a transaction and what we're uh, doing is like if we verify a false transaction and the network comes back and says, oh, you've tried to uh, uh, save the incorrect data to the network, you lose some of that stake. So you're kind of putting up value in return for writing transactions to the network. And um, you're penalized if you do kind of uh, try to write incorrect data to the network. Okay, so I guess the Bitcoin mining would be a thing of the past and uh, there's no more... Um, I forgot what the, what the last uh, number I saw, but uh, if you were well, talking Ethereum about mining will definitely be a thing of the past, but like big, so Ethereum definitely is moving that way, but Bitcoin for some reason, um, I mean, and there's probably some good reasons, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a big fan of Bitcoin, but um, Bitcoin doesn't have any plans that I know of to move to anything other than proof of work. Okay. Okay. So maybe, well, maybe at some point the Bitcoin would just become a finger of the past uh, and uh, be replaced by other networks that are more, uh, you could, well, environmentally uh, friendly and uh, conscious of the amount of compute resources that uh, they're consuming and energy, especially in this market when energy is getting more and more expensive all over the world. Um, and I guess uh, in terms of smart contracts, you talked about uh, you, know, you can uh, store uh, state as well as uh, some compute uh, onto the network, uh, which I guess straight away brings to mind, uh, you know, as a developer, you know, if I need to uh, update some, you know, update my code uh, and update my database schema and all of that, uh, now this sounds like it's going to be hugely complicated to do that when you're talking about updating all these different nodes all around the world that I don't control. Uh, what are some of the mechanisms for deployment uh, when you have to I don't know, update your code or update the state uh, or associated with your with your contract? So the contracts themselves are immutable. And there's a couple of ways that you would think about building applications when you're dealing with smart contracts, I guess. Uh, one would be that you're just building them in a lot different of a, a way than what we're used to. We're, we're used to building something and iterating on it and like making updates every day. Um, and we, we were used to these very large code bases, but typically a smart contract will be a fairly concise piece of code that powers something else. So like you might have a smart contract that powers a DeFi front end, but that smart contract has a somewhat limited uh, you know, breadth of, of functionality. And if you want to upgrade that, like for instance, we've deployed this DeFi protocol um, and we need to kind of make some updates to that logic then we essentially need to deploy a brand new version of that, or you can do something called a proxy, meaning that you have the main contract that kind of points to the version of the contract that you want to be executed. That's a lot more complicated. So there's kind of trade-offs there. If you do a proxy contract, you can upgrade, but then you have the complexity, the additional complexity around how that actually works. But but just because the contract is immutable in the sense that we're, we can't just 
change the code within it, you can actually have mutable functionality within the contract. So if you need to change state, you can obviously do that. You know, you can write your contract in a way that is uh, allows it to kind of be molded and, and things like that if you kind of are uh, experienced as a smart contract developer. And I suppose that if I've got a contract that needs to be executed between two different parties, uh, can I encode that uh, and as part of uh, using smart contracts? And in that case, uh, how would you deal with things like, oh, um, the two parties on the network, they have different versions of my contract. How do you reconcile those kind of challenges? You typically try to upgrade the application for, from the old contract to the new to the new one. So like if you're running your application, you'll have a V1 of your app and a V2, and you kind of make that very apparent, I guess, in the UI. So a good example of this is like Uniswap, which is one of the, the DeFi exchanges that does, you know, a few billion dollars, uh, you know, of transactions. Um, I don't know, like per day or per week, but they're, they're doing billions of uh, dollars in transactions, but they have like a V2, a V3, and you can kind of like toggle between them. And they offer like a different subset of functionality. So you mentioned the D5 a few times now. Um, I'm sort of busy trying to Google that while you were talking. Uh, what is D5 exactly? Yeah, D5 is decentralized finance, and it was kind of one of the you know big killer quote unquote use cases of of smart contract technology and blockchains, and that were beyond just uh, the transfer of value. And when you think of kind of what a bank does. The, a, a bank is this centralized intermediary that we go to for storing our money, for retrieving our money, for lending, for borrowing, all of these things. So if I want to kind of say, I need uh, $50,000 for a pool or something like that, I might go to my bank and they might take out um, a loan and they might ask for something in, uh, for collateral. Now for this to happen, we need an actual bank. So the bank needs to go and build a building we need to hire employees. You know, we need to pay insurance. Like we, we have this whole, you know, entire business going to, to run this bank. And we might have like five or six employees and, 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 and you know, we'll probably do a few million dollars a month of, of transactions or something like that. Well, you could think of like a smart contract or DeFi is abstracting away a lot of the mechanisms that you might typically see in a bank. So uh, for instance, again, uh, going back to something like Uniswap, Uniswap is a, a market maker. There's also a couple of other different types of, uh, of DeFi protocols out there like Aave, Compound, and they do different things. But you often have these smart contracts that are maybe a few hundred lines of code, maybe a few thousand lines of code that are doing billions of dollars in transactions. Uh, and they might have like 10 developers, but they're doing a lot of the same stuff that you might see at a bank. And they are doing it with a lot less people. So they're essentially kind of like automating away a lot of the different stuff that you might typically need at a bank. And anyone that that has tokens for that network can kind of interact and, and use it. So if I wanted to borrow some money, I could do that. I would have to put up some collateral of my tokens, but I would be able to say, I want to put up some uh, some Ether as a collateral and then exchange. I want to borrow like 50,000 US dollars and I would be able to do that. And then I could kind of do whatever I would want with that. And then if I pay that back, then I would unlock my ETH. Okay. And uh, I guess in that case, uh, if you know, we're talking about smart contracts being executed on the blockchain, um, are there any sort of security mechanisms in place to stop people from writing malicious code that gets executed on the, on the network and affecting millions of well, everybody on the network? 
Yeah, so I would say that one of the biggest things that that you see often in, in DeFi protocols, especially, are really big bug bounties and also really big hacks, because you are essentially, you know, you're you're trusting this contract with all this money between the different parties. So if I can find a vulnerability and I can extract fifty million dollars out of it, then it's kind of like this idea of uh, of, of a dark forest where if you find if a vulnerability is made known to anyone, then they then there will be someone there that will try to, to to kind of like take it out. So you often see that we have big bug bounties in the blockchain space. So for instance, we have a two and a half million dollar bug bounty uh, open at Graph Protocol. And, and, and you have like, you know, in the range of like a few hundred thousand to a few million dollars often for these bug bounties. And it's because of of the high value that are often stored in these contracts. So we've seen we've seen hacks so far up to like $400 million. I think there was a wormhole hack where someone exploited the Solana and Ethereum bridge for like $400 million. And it was like literally one little tiny like statement on a line of code. It wasn't even a whole line of code. It was like one missing, you know, like word. And 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 someone found that exploit and they were able to, would, to withdraw like $400 million. So the stakes are very high. And I think that uh, we're still fairly early in figuring out the most secure ways to kind of write these DeFi protocols. But, um, you know, there's there's a lot of value that's being created, but there's also, therefore, a lot of value there to be exploited. So you do see a lot of, uh, of people in there trying to kind of find those exploits. Right. And another thing I just, uh, that's been on the news quite a lot recently is that this whole MFT thing, uh, which I find really fascinating. And uh, on one hand, it's uh, giving you a way to represent, uh, I guess, originality uh, for art and other um, creative content that you know, has we haven't been to do until now in the digital world. But on the other hand, you know, you're seeing all kind of silly things that are going for crazy money. Uh, and I guess I'm still quite confused about in terms of uh, how does uh, Web3 relate to NFT and people telling me that uh, you know Web3 is the thing that powers or enables NFT. Um, so can you maybe explain you know, how does NFT work in that case and how does it relate to uh, blockchains and smart contracts? Sure. So an NFT is typically known as kind of like an implementation of a smart contract that is a standard called ERC721. And this contract allows you to mint these unique digital assets. And often you see kind of like one of ones just stand alone, but you also often also people do these collections where you have like 10,000 or 5,000 of a collection. And then each one within that collection has like some different traits, slightly different than the other. Yeah, it's really interesting when I, you know, when I first got into the space, the things that interested me the most were definitely DeFi they were definitely having to do with uh, stable currencies, stable coins, and and uh, you know crypto being made available in different parts of the world. But um, but I soon after discovered like NFT and the NFT communities that were very very like enthusiastic and very passionate. And I think when I was in uh, in Paris in July, I went to a conference called ETCC, and that was my first time really kind of like meeting people that were into these NFTs and stuff. And on, on the way back home, I minted a couple just to try it out. And it's it's interesting. It's kind of fun. But, you know, there's a lot of people that really, really like them and a lot of people that really, really dislike them. And then there's a lot of people that are kind of like in the middle. So, you know, I, I guess it's more, it's less about me trying to say, oh, these things 
are valuable because X, Y, and Z. And instead kind of looking at the market and seeing that there are like more and more people every day that, that kind of themselves see something there that's valuable to them. And therefore the market cap like just keeps going up. But the general idea is that you have now for the first time, theoretically, the idea of owning something, owning a digital asset, where in the past, the only thing that we could really own was maybe like you could say, oh, I have like $100 in my bank account and I own that because my bank tells me that. Think about if we had a way to kind of like have different value that again is like stored on a distributed ledger, which is the blockchain. And instead of thinking about just currency, what about we had uh, different other digital assets, right? Like, and I think that's kind of the whole idea with NFTs. You have this way to represent something on the chain. And typically, you know, when we start getting into this discussion of NFTs, people have um, like an image or a video or a piece of art or something like that, that they are storing in a transaction and then they can kind of like send that to another person or they can sell it or whatever but to them it means it feels like they own it and i think i didn't really get it at all until i did go on my way back from france that day on the plane and and kind of bought a couple of nfts they showed up in my wallet i was able to kind of like send them to my friends Uh, they were able to send me their own nfts now that i had my address I was able to list one on exchange. You kind of feel a true sense of digital ownership for the first time. And it's hard to explain until you've actually done it. But I think once you feel that sense of digital ownership, even if you have a thousand people trying to explain to you, oh, you don't really like own that, like you do have control over it. You have full control over it. You know, it's no one else can kind of like take it from you in the sense of that token being under your own address, like as the owner. And I think that's just something we didn't have before. And it's, and it's a very strong feeling once you kind of experience it. And um, people are using it in all sorts of ways. Like, I think I think one of the most interesting use cases is going to be gaming. Some people are okay with, like, especially here in places where we have a lot of money, like to spend $1,000 a month, uh, or I'm sorry, a year on like Fortnite or, or a few hundred dollars a year on, on their gaming. And then, and then just like, you know, that's cool. But um, I think it's also interesting if we have the the opportunity for some people, if they want to, to do this, to instead of just dumping billions of dollars to this gaming company, instead, all of these different Fortnite skins and all of these V-Bucks that I'm buying, what if I could take those and, and like give them to one of my friends or I could sell them and get some of that value back? What if I had that option? Again, some people just don't care. They're willing, they're, they're cool with just like dumping as much money as they want and not getting anything in return. But some people do think it's pretty cool that we might have a digital representation of of those things and, and able to get them back. So I think gaming is definitely an interesting place. And I think that's where we're going to see the really, really big explosion of like NFT adoption, in my opinion. And that's also why you start seeing like a lot of the, the talks around metaverse stuff, Microsoft getting into the metaverse, meta getting into the metaverse stuff. Both of those companies are investing heavily in this, and they've also both talked about how NFTs might play a role in there. Again, I think the most, I think the greatest part about all this stuff is that if you don't want to do it, if you don't want to like participate in it, you don't have to. But the people that are in it are having a lot of fun, and it's still early. We don't really know what it's going to look like. Yeah, I guess talking about gaming, uh, um, I remember reading about uh, this thing called the uh, Crypto Kitties uh, a while back, maybe a couple of years ago, and uh, it was uh, massive, and it was. Uh, 
generating some ridiculous amount of uh, revenue i think in the hundreds of millions maybe in billions of dollars of uh, uh, of revenue a year i guess that's maybe an early example of uh, what sort of things uh, you know can come from this uh, blockchain technology and combined with gaming are there other sort of you know, big examples that i know of that, that you know of you know, successful stories of uh, applying crypto blockchains to gaming yeah i mean there's a couple of use cases that you know could be looked at as success stories one of them is i forgot the name of this game but um there is a game out there that that was launched and over the last like 6 months or so they they reached over like a billion dollars in uh, in actual transactions between users oh it's called Axie Infinity so Axie Infinity is a game that isn't really played maybe that much here in the US but um um, around the world, the adoption is fairly fairly large. And for a time, and, and it's, I think there's still some people that are doing this, people were making uh, more money uh, just playing the game than they were in their native country. I think the Philippines was was one country where there was a lot of people actually playing this and kind of making more than if they were out um, in a regular job. So th- that that was a example of a game that had some success. It's still, you know, fairly successful. People are still playing it and there's still, you know, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars worth of value being traded between parties. And again, the coolest part about that is instead of 100% of the money going to the gaming studio, 95% of the money is just transacted between the parties, right? So instead of me like giving $100 and, and going to the, to the corporation, 5% goes to the corporation, 95% stays within the, the gamers. Again, some people don't like that, but there are people out there that find that pretty compelling, you know? And I think that if we can apply that model to a lot of uh, more interesting, maybe newer games like Fortnite, those, those really nice um, games with like the nice UI, nice UX, then people will kind of definitely uh, be adopting that. And and again, Axie Infinity is like a really, really early stage version of this, but it was kind of a terrible game. Like I played it and I was like, this is not fun. <laughs> but like if, if there's that many people using it, the incentive mechanism there is there. They're like the, the whole idea of like uh, the tokens and stuff being part of it, that incentive mechanism, the ownership is part of it. So I think if we can kind of like apply that ownership to a really nice game, then you're going to see a lot of people. I personally, you know, would rather spend a thousand dollars on a game if I was going to keep 900 of it. I don't know, like maybe I'm crazy, but that's me. And I think there's a lot of other people that are out there like me. Okay, interesting, interesting. I'm looking at it now. I think uh, can't really tell what this game is really about. It's got some really cute graphics, uh, but. Uh, Okay, and what about in terms of uh, other use cases uh, that you know of uh, um, that are gaining some traction apart from DeFi and uh, gaming? Yeah, for sure. I mean, music. So there's a lot of uh, musicians that are doing NFT stuff. I went to ETH Denver, and I, I think one of the things I love the most about this space is that it's not just developers building business applications. When I was at ETH Denver, I met actresses and actors, and I met uh, musicians and artists. And I met someone in porn, like, you know, like all types of people from all over the spectrum of life. And they're all collaborating with developers to do stuff. So like, again, you have like these musicians doing NFTs. Um, You have this idea of a DAO. So I created a DAO called Developer DAO. We have over, uh, I think, five or 6,000 members now. We have over 50,000 followers on Twitter. We just did a, we just started a hackathon this week. We have $65,000 in prizes that were given to us by sponsors. And the way that we operate is that we want people that are in the developer community that want to help us achieve our missions, values, and goals, which are free developer education, free developer events, 
and open source uh, free. So we just want to create free and public goods. So to get into the DAO, all you needed to do was mint a free NFT. And the NFT, again, like didn't cost any money, but you kind of have this token of ownership. And with that token, you can access the Discord, you can help build and participate and like meet people we've had dozens or, or yeah i mean I, I would i wouldn't say hundreds but maybe dozens of people that have landed high quality jobs just by being part of the community um, we've had so many great people create relationships i've met so many friends within that and kind of the whole dao was facilitated by this token and this token gating mechanism that you often see in kind of web3 and the cool thing about it is like if you then you get into the DAO for a couple of months, you land a job, you meet a couple of great people, and then you don't have time for it anymore. You have a representation uh, of, of your ownership that you can then give away to someone else or you can sell it. So you've helped build this community. You've minted this token for free. Now it's probably worth like 0.15 ETH, which is like, I don't know, maybe 500 bucks. So you can now get, that, get some of that uh, effort back and you still have all of those things that you had like as part of that. So like NFTs are often used for access. So uh, one example of that is with DAOs. Another example is like a lot of events and stuff are now looking at NFTs for getting into the events. So Render ATL, I think is experimenting with this. Anyone that signs up for the event gets this NFT. And then when they go to the conference, they use it to get in. But after the conference is over, they have like this token that represents their you know, attendance of that. And it's kind of cool to go back and look out, look at that. It's almost like if I, you know, some people keep all their conference badges or something, you know, on the wall, and then you kind of have that, that artifact, but it also has utility. It's a piece of technology. It's a primitive that you can then use to do other stuff with. Okay, so that brings me to my last question. Um, so if someone was interested in the learning about, the, well, in getting into this uh, Web3 space, uh, where should they start? Because we talked about quite a few different protocols as uh, getting traction. Uh, and uh, if you're just learning about you know, how the whole blockchain works and uh, you know, where should you start looking and uh, what are some of the resources that you recommend for people to go to learn about, you know, programming, uh, Web3 applications and smart contracts? For sure. And this is probably my favorite part of the, the, whole, the whole discussion because I've spent the last 10 months trying to create as much educational like material and resources that I can possibly make to help onboard people into this space. And I think the, the best part about this entire thing is that literally you're not leaving anything behind when you start diving into these new technologies. You have all of the same skill sets. Like I still go and build apps with CDK. I still go build React Native apps. I now have this new skill set that I can make $500 an hour as a Solidity developer though, if I wanted to. And I think that's the really empowering part about all this. It's, it's not a lot of new things to learn in the sense of if you're a developer, you can probably pick this stuff up within a month or two, but it opens the doors to so many more possibilities. So like you take all of the things that you know, all that knowledge that you built up over your career, and you're just kind of like adding to it. And you don't have to literally learn this and then go and be a quote unquote, like web three developer. You can literally continue doing whatever you like, but now you understand this new primitive in your head and you might start thinking, oh, th like, I see a new way that I might apply these technologies. So that's the best part about it. You are able to just have more ways to build stuff. So if you want to get started building, I would say 
there is a couple of different blockchains, but I mentioned the Ethereum virtual machine. And I think the Ethereum virtual machine is a really great place to start because it's almost like JavaScript in the sense that you can learn JavaScript and you can write desktop apps and web apps and mobile apps and and backends and all types of stuff. So you learn this one technology, this one language, and you can apply it in multiple areas. The EVM is kind of like that. The Ethereum virtual machine is essentially Solidity and a Solidity development environment. And using that, you can write apps for Ethereum, Polygon, Arbitrum, Optimism, Celo, Avalanche, like dozens of blockchains. So I would I would recommend starting with the EVM. There's a really great YouTube and also website called Solidity by Example. And the, and the Solidity by Example will kind of get you started. I have a couple of really great tutorials for learning Web3. One of them is... Uh, the complete guide to full stack web three development. And then in that tutorial, I have linked to three other ones that are really great. I would also recommend checking out Austin Griffith Speedrun. He has uh, an Ethereum speedrun, which is kind of like a really comprehensive EVM tutorial. And uh, yeah, those two places are probably a really great place to start. And then from there, you'll 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 probably see me linking and him linking to a bunch of other stuff. Okay, I'll make sure that those are included in the show notes for anyone who's interested. And I will make sure that uh, I'll get your uh, YouTube channel uh, included in the show notes as well for anyone to check out the tutorials that you've done over there. Thank you again, Nada, for taking the time to, to come to the show and explain to us uh, what, is, um, uh, what is Web3 and NFT and all these different uh, protocols that's in the blockchain space. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. And um, I hope people enjoy looking into some of this stuff. Sounds good. Take care, man. So that's it for another episode of Real World Serverless. To access the show notes, please go to realworldserverless.com. If you want to learn how to build production-ready serverless applications, please check out my upcoming courses at productionreadyserverless.com. And I'll see you guys next time.